Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name is Amanda Wojtas, and I'm your host. I am so excited to share this interview with you guys because, holy cow, I got to talk to Melissa Phoebos, the author of the powerhouse essay collection Abandon Me, named one of the best books of 2017 by Esquire Refinery29, Lit Hub, Book Riot, Electric Literature, and New York Magazine's The Cut. In Abandon Me, which was just released in paperback, Melissa tells the story about reconnecting with her birth father, the history of her relationship with her adoptive father, and a long-distance relationship she had with a lover named Amaya. This book is beautifully written, a lot of the essays are braided, and so, so smart, and it's by turns devastating, vulnerable, erotic, I could go on. Megan Daum, who is much more articulate than I am, called it a powerful, poignant meditation on not only the pain of loss, but also the maddening, intoxicating, confusing, and exhilarating effects of true human closeness. The New Yorker said that the sheer fearlessness of the narrative is captivating. Melissa is a professor and serves on the board of VITA, Women in Literary Arts, but you might also know her from her first book, Whip Smart which is a memoir about the years she spent working as a dominatrix in a sex dungeon in Manhattan in, you guessed it, her 20s. I don't know what your sort of listenership knows about pro-doms. I don't have the data for what we as an audience know about being a professional dominatrix, so let me get you up to speed. It's a lot of role-playing, no sex with anybody, and Melissa made $75 an hour. But Whip Smart is so much more than a book about the world of professional doming. It explores this double life Melissa led as a student at the new school and as a dom, but also as someone who had a drug addiction and the decision she made to get clean. So do me a favor, amazon.com, add Abandon Me and Whip Smart to your cart, read them, love them, thank me later. In this interview, Melissa's gonna tell us how Whip Smart came to be, how writing Abandon Me was different, what she does when she feels like giving up, and her best professional advice. Here's Melissa. I think I was 21 when I met a neighbor who was like a friend of a friend. And it was this woman who, she was really impressive to me. She was in law school. She was really well-spoken. She just seemed like she had her shit together. And she worked as a professional dominatrix. And, you know, that was sort of all I needed. I think before that I had thought I can be a junkie. (laughs) I can be sort of a criminal in some ways, but sex work felt, I don't know, like I was, I was an intellectual or I wanted to be, you know, and it felt Like it would be humiliating on some level that I wasn't prepared for. And I had dealt with like a lot of sexual harassment when I was younger. And so I I sort of steered clear of it. But all I needed was permission from one person who I found impressive. Um, And so I answered an ad in the Village Voice. And I ended up at this place in Midtown that was really sort of posh and sort of dim, but elegant, like den of a space in midtown Manhattan with these huge rooms and red carpets and mirrored locking rooms. And and to me, you know, 
$75 an hour was outrageous. Was That was like riches beyond my conception <laughs> at that age, you know. I didn't have to have sex with anyone, you know. I dressed up in crazy, sexy costumes and I acted out scenes. I always wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels important to me sometimes to clarify that I don't think that's required. If people want to be a writer, a lot of people find their passion in middle age or later, you know? Um, yeah. But for me, I was always obsessed with reading and I was obsessed with writing and I was also kind of bossy. And so <laughs> <laughs> by the time people were thinking about what we wanted to be when we grew up or when adults were asking us that, it already seemed like the only reasonable path for me yeah. <laughs> because I was so obsessed with words and books and stories and sort of using narrative to make sense of things, you know, mm-hmm. but my first jobs were all, um, you know, I grew up on Cape Cod and that's a sort of summer tourist economy. And so I worked in restaurants for my whole young life from like the day I turned 14. And then there were a few jobs in there. Like I worked at a boatyard or I did some landscaping. Um, and I had been living on my own since I was almost 17, since I was 16. And, you know, it just seemed like there was no internet, you know? And so I got all of my ideas about what a writer was from, reading about them, you know, reading biographies, um, reading novels. And it just seemed from a really early age, like New York was the place I had to go if that's what I wanted to do. And I had this like deep suspicion and hope that that's where I would find my people. Um, So I moved to New York and I decided on the new school because I wanted to be in New York. And I knew like one person who was going there (laughs) and I was like, okay, that's where I'll go. I like went to look at their website and it seemed like both sort of very intellectual, but also really loosey goosey. Like you could yeah. sort of make up what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. And I had, I had dropped out of high school because I didn't like other people telling me what my curriculum should be. <laughs> uh, like the hubris of which is now hilarious to me. Um, and then I sort of continued this like, life that was had this incredible tension between my interest and enthusiasm and I just like I loved school I'm a nerd I've always loved school but then I also had this this other life you know I was an active heroin addict already Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and my life is sort of marked by this real dichotomy between sort of my ambition and my passions and my work and then sort of, at least at that time, sort of my addiction. And I I had this real sort of double life that my school friends didn't know anything about, which was really exhilarating for a time and then was incredibly painful Mm -hmm. and really sort of shrunk my life in some really deep ways. You wrote and whip smart that you were writing at the time. What did your writing life at that point look like? Yeah, you know, at that point, you know, in my early 20s, it was a 
It was a strange time because sort of the end of my addiction was kind of dovetailing with the beginning of my experience um, as a dominatrix. And I think in a way it sort of postponed my hitting bottom for a little while because it was so engrossing yeah. um, and, and really sort of uh, was congruent with my like habit and need or interest in having a double life. It was a whole different kind of double life. Um, but what happened was <clears throat> I graduated from college and then I got sober. And once I stopped using, I had this idea that I would no longer be able to work as a dominatrix. And that turned out not to be true, that I actually think that working as a dom sort of helped me maintain my sobriety in some ways. So much of my identity was tied up in having a double life and sort of being good and bad at the same time. And mm-hmm. it might be hard to understand if you don't have that mechanism in your personality or maybe if you've never been an addict. But for me, like, it was a part of my identity also, you know, like it was a disease. I see it as a disease, but it was also a huge part of who I was. And it, and it expressed like there were sort of dark and troubled and desperately hungry parts of my personality that, that I enacted in that part of my life. And, and I had to let go of all of that um, when I got sober and being a Dom really sort of um, occupied that space for a little while. And then you know, after maybe another year, um, a year and a half, uh, I got sort of, I got depressed basically. Um, and it occurred to me, I was suffering from this really terrible anxiety and it was, I couldn't write at all. And I wasn't even really reading. Um, and I had this thought one day where that I needed to quit my job because it was no longer it no longer fit with the way that I was living, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I understood that writing was the thing I was meant to do. I believed that, you know, and I still do. And, and I wasn't doing it. Something was keeping me from doing it. And I think it was that sort of detachment from myself that the job was reinforcing, yeah. you know, and I had had a similar thought about getting clean where it was like, Oh, this has to stop. It's preventing me from, from becoming mm-hmm. myself, from being myself. And, and so I quit and I applied to graduate school in creative writing and and I ended up at Sarah Lawrence like the next year and that's really where I basically see the beginning of the life I have today okay at what point did you think like oh I could write a book about this experience like you didn't take the job like thinking that right it was just no yeah no I didn't but you know what because I had been thinking of myself as a writer for so many years and I was I was the archivist of my own life also like I was Mm -hmm. always writing things down and taking notes partly because I think that helped me move through experiences um and because I wanted to remember things and also because you know building stories was just how I processed experience. And so when I was at the dungeon, like some of the experiences I had were just so outlandish and hilarious and interesting. And I have, I actually have a terrible memory, but I just, I already had, had sort of cultivated in myself the habit of writing things down when I wanted to remember them and when they seemed important. And so I kept a journal while I was there 
and I saved sort of scripts that my clients would give me and I would take notes. Yeah. And, um, and I think sometimes this is hard for people to believe, but I, I, I earnestly never once thought I would write a book about it. I just knew that it was extraordinary. And, and I did have the thought, you know, at least once I was in grad school, I thought, oh, I'll probably have some, you know, supporting character in a fictional story who is a dominatrix. Like, I'll use that material yeah. somehow, but I never planned on writing a book about it, and I never planned on writing memoir at all. I'd never intended to ever write about my experience except sort of under the guise of fiction. And what happened was I entered my MSA in, in fiction, mm -hmm. and I was writing a novel in which none of that material appeared, and I took a class in nonfiction just as an elective, and I didn't even... I didn't even think about it really. I was curious and I was scared. I thought that nonfiction writers had to be journalists, that they had to have well-formed permanent opinions about politics. And I was someone who felt really porous in that way. Like I absorbed a lot of information, but my mind changed a lot. But I took this nonfiction class that was kind of a survey, and we wrote a book report, not a book report, a book review and an op-ed, <laughs> and, and then we got some memoir. And my teacher told us to write, you know, like five pages or something. And I went home, and I just wrote about being a dom. Like, I wrote about my first session. Anyone who finds the work that they are called to do will recognize this feeling or some correlative of this feeling. But when I started writing that story, it just, like it was writing me, you know, it just came out like it wasn't easy, but there was just an engine in me for it. And yeah. like the story wanted to be told. And I wrote it in one night. And when I gave it to my teacher, he said, you have more material on this. And I was like, I have endless material on this. <laughs> I have like four years of experience with this. And, and he said, whatever you're working on, stop, like you need to write a book. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, no, really? I'm not. Yeah. I was like, I'm not a memoirist. I don't want to be a memoirist. I don't, I can't like public, like it's, this is just like, I still, it hadn't even occurred to me. And I thought, no, like I'm writing a very important novel. My novel was terrible, um, but <laughs> I'm sure it uh, wasn't. I mean, what it was, it was, it was a disguised version of this story. It was a story yeah. about um, having a double life and being sort of ashamed of certain drives and confronting those drives, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really murky and sort of it, the disguise really made it bad. So, um, but once that suggestion was made, I couldn't forget it, you know, and I would go back to work on the novel and it didn't feel the same, you know, it didn't have yeah. the, the, it didn't feel necessary. And so, so I started working on it and I didn't really have a plan, but I just kept writing when I need to write something, when the story feels urgent and necessary and like the right time to do it, that's when I do my best work. Like that book was better than anything I'd ever written before. And I suddenly was able to sort of employ these tools that I was studying and this craft. I don't know. And probably you have experience with this, but I'm thinking of like when I was a kid and I played sports when I was younger and I played baseball and I also used to sing. And it's like when you're learning a new thing, it's so awkward. It's not natural. It's hard. It's like you have to hold your mouth in this way or hold your arm in this way. And you have to remember so many things. And it feels like just 
janky. And and then there's this moment that happens when you've been doing it for a certain amount of time where it just comes together and you've built these instincts and you're doing it, you know? And yeah. writing Whip Smart felt like that to me. I wanted to go back to one story you told in the book. There was a point where you had graduated and you were kind of (laughs) worried that like, if you didn't sort of take a job in publishing, like you would never do it. Mm -hmm. And so you left and the job ended up being horrible. (laughs) And so you quit. And I feel like in the mm-hmm. podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, like first jobs are terrible and like hang yeah. in there and keep doing it. And I appreciated that you kind of did the opposite. You were just like, this sucks. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> so, um, were you nervous that you, by leaving that job, you know, you weren't going to be able to use your degree or did you just kind of know yeah. like, this is wrong. I'm going to go back out and try to find something else. I mean, you know, <sighs> I did um, some internships at magazines and I, I worked at sort of a cool independent publisher. And then the job you're referring to is like my first sort of real job where I worked at this um, scholarly publishing house. And all of these jobs were adjacent to what I wanted to do. I was like handling books and, and moving yeah. words around, but it just didn't, it just wasn't the thing. I was like, this doesn't lead to what I, what I need to be doing. And, and now I can sort of look back and think, oh, like that was brave or confident, but it wasn't really, I just had this sort of slavish devotion to the thing I wanted to be doing. And, and I was going to keep making choices that felt like they were going to bring me there. And so, um, yeah. And in some ways, like the jobs that I ended up taking after that job were, you know, and they didn't, they didn't look as good on the surface. I went back to being a dom for a while. I was a dog walker. I went back and worked in a restaurant for a bit. Uh, I worked as an assistant to this like really amazing, incredibly rich lady on the Upper West Side. <laughs> um, there was something about working in an office and sort of using my verbal energy on this work that sapped me. Like I had nothing left at the end of those days. Um, and I needed something left to do my work and walking dogs was totally different. It drew energy from a different part of me, you know? And so I was able to like walk around and not talk to anyone and think and just spend time with animals and get exercise. And then I could go home and write. And part of, you know, what enabled me to sort of live that way and make those choices were, these incredible privileges. Like I had a family that told me I could do that, that I could do whatever I wanted, you know? Um, And I was able to get different kinds of jobs. So I'm also really grateful for that. But there really was this sort of like foolhardy, dogged part of me that was like, I'm just going to keep going until I get to the place I need to be. I think that's really admirable. And I think it's Mm. one of the hardest challenges for me in my 20s is knowing or being able to tell the difference between like, okay, is this actually a good job where I'm like learning mm-hmm. and it's going to pay off? Or mm-hmm. is this actually just a dead end? Most of them have turned out yeah. to be dead ends. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, there are a lot of dead ends. Yeah. Like, the real-life sort of choose-your-own-adventure story is way more boring than actual choose-your-own-adventure books. You know, yeah. glory or death is at the end of every choice, but in real life, it's like a lot of monotony. Oh, my <laughs> yeah, gosh. Yes, so much. Okay, going back, it sounds like Whip Smart just kind of poured forth. Was Abandon mm-hmm. Me just as easy? Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Abandon Me was just as urgent, mm-hmm. but it was a very different process, partly because I was still in a lot of the experience I was writing about as I was writing it. Yeah. And so I was I was writing my way out of the experiences, you know, Um, and the form of it was very, very different. Abandon Me is a collection of essays and, and some of the forms are, are really strange. There's a lot of braided essays. There are essays that are driven more by sound than narrative. Um, I didn't know how it ended, so I couldn't plan for that. And I think I had to sort of come up with these different forms to to push me through the essay because you know when you're writing a story and you know how it ends and it's chronological you're writing towards the next event that happened right you have like an end point yeah right and when when I was writing abandon me I didn't know where it was going to end and so I didn't know what I was writing to so I had to use other methods to sort of propel me through the essay or different kinds of structures other than um time like I didn't know where I was going. I just knew that I had to examine it in order to sort of move through it. Um, and that was both really scary and also an amazing process of discovery. Yeah. Did you ever feel like giving up? Oh God, I felt like giving up yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, like it's so, it's so lonely sometimes, you know, like, yeah. and I, I don't know, I can't really speak for other kinds of writers, but I think also when I'm like writing memoir or work that's based on my personal experience means that I spend a lot of time alone reliving and examining the most painful sort of yeah. um, incoherent parts of my experience, which is a lot like it's not required it's not even recommended for a lot of people you know um it's it's really painful and I think um I have often wanted to give up and I think when I'm writing the way that I want to be writing I am pushing right up against the limits of my own skill and knowledge whatever it is that I'm writing I'm learning how to do it as I'm doing it and and so the stakes feel high and it's incredibly challenging and it's why I can't work a regular job really because it's not that experience you know it's mm-hmm. it's exhausting in a totally different kind of way and so but yeah I often want to quit like in my early 20s when I had graduated college and I wasn't writing and I wasn't reading and I was an active drug addict working as a dominatrix I was like I feel so far from the life that I thought I'd be living and and from the person I am sort of in this nascent way inside of me. um, And I don't know how to get from here to there, you know? Um, But I do think like there is like fear is always swirling around on the surface of us. And there is this deeper wisdom that all of us have. It's where art comes from. It's where like the ways that we truly love other people comes from like, and, and for me, even in those times when I felt incredibly hopeless and far from where I needed to be, 
if I got really quiet, like I could hear it, you know? And it's like those moments where I was like, you have to get clean. You have to quit this job. And so often I think they come together, those moments of hopelessness and I don't want to go on. And then you sort of let go for a minute. And then like, for me, if I listen, I can hear that voice that is separate from my fear. Okay. I want to pause right here and read you from the essay titled Abandon Me in Abandon Me. I was so lucky to hear Melissa read at Emma Straub's bookstore, Books Are Magic in Brooklyn, and this passage just electrified me. I think you'll see why. One afternoon, from a nearby cafe table, a local told us a story about a train conductor who'd fallen in love and had his heart broken by a woman in town. Every time he passed through, he'd sound his train's whistle all the way, borrowing its will for his own so that the whole town could feel his busted heart hum in their chests, rattle their teeth, shake their skulls. And after that, every time a train passed and I heard that cry, I wondered if it was a warning or a wailing or a hallelujah. I thought of my own heart, how much I feared her breaking it. It would sound like that, I thought. It would be the only sound I ever heard again. It would be wrecking against the shore of one person for the rest of my life. I feared it so much that I broke my own heart every day that I loved her. I felt it when I watched her reading in a cafe, absentmindedly scratching her head and twirling a pen with her long fingers. I felt it when we drove 30 miles to swim in a pool of water risen from deep underground, her skin warm and smooth as clay under my hands. On the way back, we stopped at the largest rattlesnake exhibit on the planet, where we paid $5 to two petrified men in a warehouse with a hand-painted sign steeped in the rot dirt stench of snake shit and stood in front of a rattler yellow as a fingernail and thicker than her long leg leaned against me. And I whispered that I didn't have any underwear on because I had swam in them. And she laughed and told me a lady should always wear underpants to visit the largest rattlesnake exhibit on the planet. I felt it. When I made love to her in that chair by the window, dawn glowing her body like a fruit split open to its wet center, I felt it. The way you feel of all just looking over the edge of a roof. Will you love me forever, she asked me. Yes, I said. I couldn't know, though. When that whistle spills over the desert, you can only hear the call of your own heart. When I looked at her, I wondered, are you my wrecking shore? Are you my third rail? Or are you my hallelujah? That's the worst feeling ever to feel like you're so off the mark from where mm-hmm. you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And then you feel like selfish and mm-hmm. naive and like all of that. Like, I'm really hoping that that gets easier in my 30s. Mm-hmm. It's got to, right? It does. <laughs> okay, it good. does. It does. I mean, I really feel like the secret is to just keep going. Yeah. This is about sort of like work and professional stuff and creative stuff. But for me, it's also like just about living and like my feelings. It's like, if I have a feeling, I feel hopeless. I feel exhausted. I feel sad. If I stop and I make fixing that feeling my job, I stop doing the things that I actually want to be doing. And then I can get stuck. You know what I mean? And so for me, like when it comes to the writing process, when it comes to like, making life choices. And just when it comes to like being a human being, which is really hard and having feelings, which I hate for me, it's just 
like, okay, have the feeling and then keep doing the thing that you want to be doing. You know what I mean? I have felt hopeless and like, it's not going to work out many, many times, but I keep writing and I keep sending my work out. I just keep showing up. Like I can make myself show up even when I feel terrible. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, that's been the secret. Like the thirties are different. Like something happened where it started instead of just working towards something, I felt like I was really manifesting. I um, love that. Okay, that it, gives me and hope. It just, <laughs> and it just gets better. Like, I wouldn't go back to any earlier year in my 30s. Yay. Okay. So. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> um, what, like, writing advice do you have for young women? Um, just keep going. Like, many of my friends who are editors at, at magazines have told me about, you know, these young men pitch a story or send their work and the editor will say, this isn't right for the issue. And the next day, the next week, that young man is back again with another pitch and another pitch and another, you know, they're just resilient. Yeah. And I think that comes from a culture telling you that you can do something, you know, and that mm-hmm. it's okay to pursue the things you want. It's okay to ask for things, you know, and to promote yourself. And, and that's the opposite of what women are told. We're not supposed to ask for things. We're not supposed to take up space. We're not supposed to be entitled. We're not supposed to even feel entitled. And you know, the same editors will tell me that these women or like young queer writers young writers of color, people who come from sort of more marginalized identities will pitch something and they'll say, this isn't right for the issue and never hear from them again. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm not good enough. Yeah. You automatically feel mm-hmm. like, Oh, I, I fucked that up. Like I'm such a screw yeah. up. They probably think I'm stupid. Oh, who am I? I'm yeah. so embarrassed. You know what I yeah, mean? It Whereas is. like the more, the more entitled person is like, Oh, well they clearly haven't recognized how good I am yet. So I need to give right. them another opportunity, you know? Oh and God. I think for women, like we have to unlearn so much in order to be able to do that. And that work is really important to just like make yourself do it, like to help call yourself a writer, even like among my students or, or other young writers. I think it's so hard for us when you say like, so what do you do to say I'm a writer if you don't have a book or you don't earn your living from that, which almost no one does, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's like those small pieces are really important. Like call yourself a writer, tell people about your work. Even if your heart is broken at a rejection, send it back out again. It doesn't feel good. It feels like the wrong thing to do and we have to do it anyway. It feels so uncomfortable. Yeah. You're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you just had to pick like one thing, what would you say either like the biggest obstacle or the biggest challenge of your twenties was? Oh boy. <laughs> I think I think I spent a lot of my 20s avoiding things. Like avoiding I was terrible at breaking up with people, like I was terrible at quitting jobs as much as I was sort of driven and obsessed with finding a way to live my creative life. I was also like terrified of people and of I was just like screwing things up and I was really avoidant and ended up sort of causing a lot of wreckage for myself and other people. And I think it was, you know, making, making decisions in my personal life that were based on fear. And, and I now know that it has such a huge effect on your life. Like, like if I could have just slowed down a little bit and like felt my feelings and been sad or, like told someone the truth when I knew they weren't going to like hearing it, you know, I would have had so many more 
options in a way, because I think when you make choices based on fear, you end up building a life that is full of things that you chose by default, not things that you chose because you chose them. Was it like you kept avoiding things and then you sort of end up in this place where you haven't made any sort of Mm -hmm. actionable choices? Yeah. Like if you just let yourself feel your own fear and discomfort around things and in relationships, then you're free to make a choice based on other reasons. Like you can make choices based on what you love or based on how you think your gifts will be of service in the world or how you actually want to treat people. Like if I have any advice for people in their 20s, it's like just let yourself have your own experience. Like let yourself feel your feelings um, and don't, don't make choices out of fear. Thank you so much Melissa for her time and insights. Next time I feel like I can't do something, which is any minute now, I'm going to take her advice of getting really quiet and listening for that voice that tells me I can do it. And I hope you try it too. Once again, please pick up Melissa's books, Whip Smart and Abandon Me. I just cannot wait to read what she writes next. Thanks for listening. See you next time.